lesson. Looks like we're coming to the end of the sixth week, as far as I can tell. So, of course, it's always interesting for me to meet with each of you individually, to hear how your practice is going. I hear up and down a lot. (laughs) I don't recall anybody saying every day in every way, it's just getting better and better and better. I think that must be on another planet. Our planet tends to be the up and down planet. And of course, the reason for that is that we didn't learn shamatha in kindergarten when we should have been learning it. It should be taught in kindergarten. Children, I mean, it's a simple thing. It doesn't make them religious, it doesn't make them Buddhist, or anything like that. It's just, why isn't it being taught in every kindergarten in the whole world? That you develop your attention skills, you develop mindfulness, presence of mind. So, maybe one of these days, I mean, we have one school where they're starting to do that, that's good. And I know it's, it's happening. More and more people being aware of the value of it. But not having that, of course, I wasn't trained in that either. Very standard kind of American education to a large extent. As a result of that, we get, just in this lifetime, let alone anything prior to this lifetime, utterly habituated to OCDD is normal and healthy, you know, like people in a leper colony. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. How are you? I just lost, I lost a few fingers yesterday, but that happens. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly fine. How are you? You know, and if everybody around you has leprosy, then it's kind of like, yeah, this is normal. You know, and so there we are, habituated to OCD as healthy. And the indication of that is that in the Encyclopedia of Mental Diseases, called the DSM, number five coming out soon, it's not listed. So habituation to that, and not even recognizing that it's a problem, and then habituation to the good life being equivalent to the hedonically good life, and fixating entirely on that. So those are two massive currents within modernity. And I would say the West, except for the West, doesn't mean anything anymore. You've lived in Hong Kong, and we've lived in people living in Singapore, and Sydney, and Ulaanbaatar, and so forth. The West is now 360 degrees around the world. It's all the way around, right? So when it comes to shamatha, the shamatha practice in an eight-week period, for some people this is a relatively long retreat. For myself... It's kind of just a time to clear the throat a few times. You know, and to really be focusing on, to be holding in mind the nine stages and thinking, okay, in eight weeks, how far will I get? I try to discourage everyone from thinking along those lines from the very beginning. Uh, but of course, we're in a kind of a go-getter society, modern society, and that is how much did you achieve? So when you come home, people say, okay, what you get? You put in that much time, what'd you get? How, how many? <laughs> you know, what was it worth? Um, and then if you say, mm, up and down, up and down, they say, wow, man, you wasted your time. I had up and down at home without going to Phuket. <laughs> and so a very legitimate question was raised by one person today, utterly legitimate, which I 100% sympathize with. And that is, when you've experienced up and down week after week after week, after a while you kind of figure, does it get any better than this? You know, or is it just up and down all the way through? And I say this with 100% sympathy, of course. Yeah? And if it were just one person, 
experiencing that, then I would just deal with that one person and say, now for the rest of you who have not had the up and down weeks, it's all gone so smoothly for you, then you know, I would just isolate that person and give that person special counseling. You're the weirdo, but I'll deal with you. you know? Whereas since that is so representative, I think it really does come boil down to something very simple. Where did the inspiration come from? Where did the inspiration come from to even fly all the way around the world? Because most of us travel a long way to get here. Where did the inspiration come from? You know? Have you have retreat centers certainly in your own country, teachers all over the place. So whatever that inspiration was, how to sustain, if one wishes to sustain, the enthusiasm, the commitment, the dedication, the vision, to continue. Now, I won't even use the word meditation because I can easily imagine people becoming disillusioned with meditation. It happens. It happens pretty frequently. When people submit their applications to come to a retreat like this, they, I often read... Uh, ten years ago I was really into meditation and then I stopped doing it for a while and now I'm kind of getting interested again. And basically they say, I'm going to try you out. You know, you, this guy here. And so, see how, you know, see what you can do for me. And I, I think all of that's very reasonable. But it's so easy to think that meditation is kind of something in the same category as golf or tennis. You know, I, I tried it, I enjoyed it for a while. Then my, my swing, my, you know, the, the clubs just didn't work very well. I, I gave it up and tried ping-pong for a while. That worked much better. But then my wrist got, I got carpunculitis, what is that called? Par- carbuncle, carbuncle syndrome? <laughs> Not quite. And so ping-pong was out. So then I tried pool and that worked much better until I developed a stiff, a frozen elbow, a frozen shoulder. And then I thought I might try meditation because after all you can meditate even with a frozen shoulder and carpal tunnel syndrome. <laughs> You may not believe it, but I am a native English speaker. <laughs> Take my word for it. So, where did it come from? Med- meditation. I would be happy not to use the word again. Because it sounds so exotic. Something out there. Something you can pick up and put down. Kind of an optional. And of course it's optional. Nobody has to meditate. But if one is serious about finding happiness, suffering less. How about just that? Suffering less. Where is there any hope whatsoever on any galaxy, out of a hundred billion of them, where you can suffer less without cultivating your heart and mind. I don't think a galaxy like that exists. I don't think there's any planet in the universe where you can suffer less and less, find greater freedom, greater contentment, without cultivating and transforming your heart and mind. don't think so. So, from my perspective, meditation is not an option. It's like, number one, I can't commit suicide because it doesn't work. So that's not even an option. I mean, I would just be so pissed after I tried doing it. And it's found that even though I, get, I put it right through the hit middle of the brain, I'm still there. Shoot. You know, like, wow. I already shot and it still didn't work. I'm still not out. And I'm actually completely persuaded of that. So, no, I've never been suicidal. But from my perspective, that's not even an option because it doesn't solve anything. So where's the way out? And we either cultivate the heart and mind, try to alleviate afflictive tendencies, or we don't. Pretty much boils down to that. And if we're going to call meditation, the cultivation of the mind, the balancing of the mind, then why not? But in that case, meditation is like breathing. So, where to draw the inspiration? Because of course we need inspiration. And to my mind... You know, inspiration will sometimes obviously be stronger and sometimes less. But I can say that I never lose it. 
I never lose it. Not one day. Never. Never even, I don't even know what it would be like to lose it. Because there it is. There's kind of this certainty that if there were something easier, apart from Dharma, it could give rise to a lasting state of well-being, less suffering and so forth, I'd go for it. Because I'm lazy. I'm by nature lazy. But I don't see it. So, coming back to that point, just in among the myriad of Dharma practices, shamatha, for cultivating exceptional sanity, genuine sanity, how about that? Not the mediocre, half-baked kind of normal normality that goes by the name of sanity nowadays. But genuine sanity, the mind is balanced. One's motivations, I'll speak of cognitive balance, one's desires, aspirations, one's goals, one's yearnings, are reality-based. They're not stupid. They're not ridiculous. They're not, they're not delusional. That'd be good. That'd be a real indication of sanity. Because if our aspirations, our wishes, are delusional, how can you call that sanity? If a person wants to eat dirt, thinking that'll be really the, the way to happiness, you say, you're, well, you're delusional, because that won't make you happy. right? And likewise, what, if one is fixated on hedonic pleasures, thinking, that's going to make me happy. Yeah, you want to try dirt first? you know. So that's the first one. Is developing some realism, some what the Buddha called right, right. I mean, right intention, right view, right livelihood, which means authentic, which means reality-based. So simply developing authentic aspirations, visions of, that could actually work out well if you pursued them. That's the bottom line. And so we have this old momentum for years or decades of the OCDD. And it's just there. It's mindless. It's like a virus. It's just mindless. It has no will of its own. It has no, how do you say, further resources to draw on, you know. Like an army may have the front, the first army, and then the back army, and the back, you know, backup. But OCD has no backup. It's just this mindless habit. And so there it is. But if we can apply to that wisdom, skill, enthusiasm, dedication, affection for ourselves and others, and apply persistence to overcoming these tendencies, so the mind does become more relaxed, stable, and clear, then over the long term, since one has no reinforcements and the other one is just relentless and smart and learns from experience what works, what doesn't work, what was the middle way, what's the extreme, what's trying too hard, what's trying too little, and just kind of bumping off the extremes and finding the middle way through experience, and the other one is just as dumb as a, t- as dumb as a glass of water. I mean, it's got no intelligence whatsoever. It's just blind habit. Then I'm going to bet on the intelligent one. Even if it takes, you know, a whole lifetime, I'm going to bet on that one because that one learns from experience and a blind, dumb habit doesn't. So I just come back to that. And that is every moment spent in cultivating the mind, whether it's loving kindness, the other four measurables, whether it's shamatha, any three methods, other methods, is it already worthwhile, period, before you, before you ask, how fast am I progressing? What benefits will this lead to in the future? When am I going to be happy all the time? When is bliss going to arise and be steady state? Without even asking the question, say, you know, there's nothing better to do than this. This is it. It's sane or insane. I'm choosing sane right now. And that's it. That's the end of the discussion. I'm choosing sane right now. And it's got to turn out well because the alternative is not so sane right now. So I think it boils down to that. Years and years ago, it was 1971 or so, early days, when I was just very young Dharma student. There was one Westerner who was a generation older than myself. He'd been studying Dharma a lot, kind of on his own. But um, his name was George Tang. He passed away years ago. 
but he'd been studying a lot. And uh, I corresponded with him a little bit when I was in Germany because I just had no Dharma friends. And he and I, we got in touch. He was a pen pal. And eventually he came to Dharmazala, became a monk. But we were sitting together up at Leah's place, sitting next to the fire up in this wonderful old English-style house up in the mountains above Dharmazala. And he sat down and he said, Alan, how come you're practicing Dharma? You know, why are you here? What are you doing this for? And I'd studied for a while by then. I'd studied, you know, like for a year or so. So I had some answers. And I did. And so I just, I did really good. And I, you know, I wasn't even remotely a Dharma teacher, but I knew some stuff. So this is why. The three principles of the path. Renunciation, bodhicitta, authentic view of reality. And I started my little Dharma discourse. Because that really struck me as the core of Dharma. I was totally committed to it. This is essence. This is worth. This is really it. And I started my little Dharma discourse on the three principles of the path. And he cut me off really quickly. And he said, yeah, but why, why are you practicing? I said, I was thinking, I guess you didn't like my Dharma talk. <laughs> I thought it was going pretty well myself. But you, you just cut me off. You interrupted and you just want to know why I'm practicing Dharma. And so then I thought of it more, and I, maybe I went back to, I know, okay, Four Noble Truths. <laughs> and I started my little talk on the reality of suffering and the sources of suffering. I mean, I'm soul. I really think that's really authentic, powerful Dharma. And I just started my little Dharma talk on the Four, four, four Noble Truths, and he cut me off, and he said, Alan, why are you practicing Dharma? And I kind of felt like that guy who was interrogated by Dumdumba, you know, it'd be even better to practice Dharma. And... I didn't know what I was supposed to answer. I mean, those are the two of the coolest things I'd found in all of the Buddha Dharma, the Four Noble Truths, the Three Principles. I mean, that, I'm, I'm, count me in. You know, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't listen to either one of my cool little Dharma talks. And so, kind of like the fellow who was Dumdumba was interrogating when he said it's very good to meditate, but even better to practice Dharma. At which point he had nothing to say and he didn't have any idea what to do. So this fellow George Tang, after, when he asked me the second time after I whipped out my two best playing cards and, uh, then I didn't know what to say. So I just kind of sat there. And then he turned to me and he said, Alan, the reason you're practicing Dharma is because there's nothing else to do. And I said, yeah, yeah you're right. <laughs> and it wasn't pathetically there's nothing else to do, like I'm bored stiff and all of whatever, I guess, Dharma. You know. But really there simply isn't anything else to do. So whether you're progressing, whether it's up and down, whether you're going around in circles, whatever it is, if there's something better to do, do it. And when you see there's nothing better to do, then just do it. Practice Dharma. So that's my sense of it. And then actually, as it starts to feed you, not just in six weeks, but six years and 60 years, and 60 lifetimes, and you really start seeing the benefit, then... Inspiration comes, and it doesn't go. Even though up days and down days, yeah? The inspiration doesn't go. It doesn't even really wane. I wake up every morning and just want to practice time. So, I'm doing something unusual today, as you can see. Bringing out high tech. <laughs> and that is, we're returning to awareness of awareness, shamatha without a sign, of course. And there's a marvelous passage here from the Vajra Essence, which 
may not be immediately relevant. You might wonder, why am I spending 20 minutes on this right now? Because it may not be really that relevant for the next two weeks. Uh, but if you continue practicing, if you find that you do experience a growing sense of inspiration, commitment, dedication, just not because somebody else is clever or an articulator or whatever, but from your own experience, you see the value of the practice, then you may want to continue over the long term. And of course, I've made many references to Dzogchen, uh, because that, to my mind, is the, the all-encompassing context for this practice that is the most meaningful I've ever heard. And so here, Dujom Lingba, in the Vajra Essence, he addresses a point that if one is not aware of it, one can waste an enormous amount of time. And if one is aware of it, the path can be very straight and very direct with, with no, how do you say, deviations. And so the distinction is between the substrate or substrate consciousness on the one hand and Rikpa, also known as Dharmakaya, Buddha mind, because they're not different. Synonyms for the same. And so what I thought I would do this afternoon, it's, it's, a, it's only about two pages, but I thought this would be time well spent. I know it's time well spent for me, because I just love reading Dojo Manga. <laughs> period. So if I'm the only one really interested, I'm going to enjoy this. <laughs> so this is well into the text, but it's 446 pages. This is page 284. So he's very now deeply into the, the explicitly Dzogchen aspect of the path or phases of the path. And here is this primordial Buddha manifesting as Padmasambhava, revealing himself to Dujom Lingba. And so Samadabhadra, primordial Buddha, then addresses one of the individuals in this mystical vision, and they're having a dialogue. And his name is Vidya Vajra, or Vajra of pristine awareness, Rikpa. And so here's his, here's the comment. And he's, this is part of a, a broader context of making very smart and clear and accurate distinctions, distinguishing between this and that. And here he's going to distinguish between the substrate, together with the substrate consciousness on the one hand, and Dharmakaya, or Rikpa on the other. He said, O Vidyavatra, if you do not know how to distinguish between the substrate and the Dharmakaya, you may take the substrate and the substrate consciousness as the path. In other words, you may feel, that's it. I found the substrate consciousness. I'm it. This is it. This is the path to awakening, to nirvana, to Buddhahood. You may take the substrate and the substrate consciousness as the path, in which case you will not transcend the three realms. The desire, the form, and formless realms. In other words, you'll be hopeless. You will have made an absolutely fundamental error that will prevent you from finding the liberation you're seeking. Why? The true substrate, the alaya, is something immaterial, devoid of thought, a space-like vacuity and blankness in which appearances are suspended. So isn't it kind of nice to see how familiar this is? And I'm reading in verbatim. Right? There's no interpretation here. This is a pretty straight translation, all of it directly under the guidance of my revered lama. We went through this three times. And so, there is the substrate. There it is, in a nutshell. Something immaterial, devoid of thought, a space-like vacuity and blankness in which appearances are suspended. Know that you come to that state in deep, dreamless sleep, when you faint and when you are dying. So all that's familiar, isn't it? Ring a bell? 
As a result of engaging in conceptual negation and affirmation, the substrate is aroused. That is, you come to, into aroused means it not lunges up at you, but you actually come into contact with it. Conceptual negation and affirmation. Like what? Oh, like withdraw your awareness from all the five physical senses. Withdraw your awareness. This is negation. This is pulling away from, right? Withdraw your awareness even from the space of the mind. Withdraw your awareness from the appearances of the mind. Do attend to, and now we're doing something. Now the affirmation. Do attend to the raw experience of the sheer luminosity and the, and the cognizance of your own awareness. So we are doing and we're not doing. We're affirming and negating. And that's how you get there, right? So all of this is familiar too. But that's how you do it, right? It's called selective attention. That's what always happens in shamatha. It's always selective. So that's how you get there. Understand that if one, if someone takes that, just the experience of the substrate, if one, understand if one, someone takes that as sublime meditation, thinking this is ultimate reality, emptiness, dharmakaya, whatever, if one takes this as ultimate sublime meditation and stabilizes it, just then plunks down, fixates on it, that might be a better translation, fixates on it, this can lead. This can lead to. Although you'll love this. Now that you spent six weeks practicing samatha, I'm going to read it from the beginning, just so you can just totally savor the latter part of this sentence. <laughs> Understand that if someone takes that as sublime meditation and fixates on it, this can lead to. Here are the benefits coming: dementia, stupor, and total ignorance. Yeah. So now, aren't you happy about the way you spent the last six weeks? Now, what he's talking about, of course, he said the substrate. That's where the sword goes into the sheath. You go into a state of unknowing, which is really not even pleasant, but at least it's peaceful. And then you just sit there not knowing anything. Okay? So if you habituate to that, fixate on that, slipping into the substrate, which, as Nicola reminded us just what yesterday, is by nature of the nature of unknowing, and you habituate to that, you fixate on it, thinking this is the ultimate, this is, woohoo! Well, uh-uh. Let's respond to that. Okay? Now, there are some teachers who identify that as the great intellect transcending extinction into reality, ultimate reality. In other words, the culminating phase of Dzogchen. Cool, huh? Much easier than we thought. <laughs> If you get stuck there, it is certain that you will be cast into existence in the realm of gods who are devoid of discernment. In other words, okay, formless realm, something like that, but you'll be just in simplar. Someone with an experience of vacuity and clarity who directs his intention inward, but now we have clarity. Before it was just the substrate, wasn't it? It was just the vacuity. But now someone with an experience of vacuity and clarity who directs his attention inward, may bring a stop to all external appearances and come to a state in which he believes there are no appearances or thoughts. This experience of radiance, from which one dares not part, not dares because you fear not to, you don't want to, right, is the... Any guesses? Substrate consciousness. Who said that? Who gets the gold star? Catherine, nice work. Yeah, let's read it again. But now we have the, not just the vacuity, the substrate, but the sub and the clarity, the lumina clarity, luminosity, synonymous, vividness, synonymous. They're all the same term. Sawa. Oh, this experience.
from which one dares not part is this experience of radiance from which one dares not part is the substrate consciousness. This is aroused by the power of being bound by the fetters of meditation. In other words, you still have the clinging there. Okay. Not the coarse obscuration, but now still the subtle ones. You're all familiar with those. The clinging to bliss, luminosity, non-conceptuality. Oh, this is aroused by the power of being bound by the fetters of meditation, not by the fetters of the desire realm or hedonic pleasures, but by the fetters of meditation, that you can get stuck, bound, you know, bound and gagged in the substrate consciousness. Right? But some, but so, this is aroused by the power of being bound by the fetters of meditation, but some teachers think it is the clear light. Clear light is Rigpa, of course, pristine awareness. So, it's happened, he's writing in the 19th century, it had happened innumerable times by then. People experiencing substrate consciousness, and thinking that's Rigpa. People experiencing substrate and thinking that's extinction into ultimate reality. It's the Dharmadhatu. Ultimate reality. Dharmata. Ultimate reality. Absolute space of phenomena. An easy mistake. If you don't have a good teacher and don't have authentic teachings. So, some teachers think it's the clear light. It's just the substrate consciousness. Others think that it is awareness of non-meditation. That's the culminating phase out of four yogas in the Mahamudra tradition. Non-meditation, that's the pièce de, pièce, pièce de résistance. Oh, merci bien. The culmination, the pinnacle, the sublime Mahamudra Yabadabadu. And they think that's it. This is the awareness of non-meditation. It's just a substrate consciousness. Get over it. And yet others identify it as the insertion of the vital energies and mind into the central channel. Now we're at the state of completion. Innate mind of clear light being dished up. Oh, yeah. In reality, it is the substrate consciousness. So if you get stuck there, you'll be cast into the formless realm without coming even a bit closer to the state of liberation. With the substrate and the substrate consciousness, you observe your own mind. In other words, you know your own mind. You've come to the essential nature of your own mind. Good. But you do not recognize or know Samsara and Nirvana as your own appearances. You've disengaged your awareness from all appearances. As much as you can, you disengage from Samsara. But you don't even have a clue about Nirvana. And so clearly, this is radically different. You've not recognized or known Samsara and Nirvana, that is, the whole of reality, as your own appearances. Your own appearances. Comes back to that question, doesn't it? Who are you? And it's your Rikpa and my Rikpa. Are they the same? Are they different? Your own. But he said, your own appearances. So there it is. That's the substrate and the substrate consciousness. The Dharmakaya, Buddha mind, Rikpa. The Dharmakaya is spontaneously actualized as the essential nature of the purity and equality of samsara and nirvana. Spontaneously actualized. This is pure discovery. It's not something you go out and, and you conquer. So, that question earlier that came up. Western model from Laura. How shall we go out and conquer the Dharmakaya? We've conquered everything else. Why don't we go out and, and grab the Dharmakaya and, and stiffen, st stick an American flag in it? That's what I'd like to see. This is American territory. You know? Conquered Dharmakaya. Well, that ain't going to happen. It's spontaneously actualized. It reveals itself to you. You don't go out and grab it. And how is it manifested as the essential nature of the purity and equality of samsara and nirvana. In other words, it is that one taste. 
It is a dimension of reality that is equally present in the mo most horrific of circumstances as well as the most sublime, the mundane to the transcendent, underlying, undergirding both and equally present in both. Boy, could that, could be, how could that be more different than the substrate consciousness, which is entirely within the bowl of samsara. No part of the substrate consciousness, its root system, goes down into nirvana or rikpa. It's, it's, it's a water lily. It's floating up on the surface. It's the foundation of your samsara, but it's not the foundation of nirvana. And it does not penetrate to rikpa, to nirvana, to emptiness. It's a floating lily pad. The Dharmakaya is spontaneously actualized as the essential pure, as the essential nature of the purity and equality of samsara and nirvana. In other words, from this perspective, samsara is just as pure as nirvana. Boy, is that not true from the substrate consciousness? Substrate consciousness is a total withdrawal from all the yucky stuff of the, of the desire realm. Right? And this is saying, Equally pure, samsara, nirvana, down to the hell realms, up to the formless realm, and then, and then nirvana too. Equally pure, all equal. That is how the whole of reality is viewed from the perspective of Dharmakaya. It is emptiness. Now, emptiness is not that sheer vacuity. It is shunyata. It is emptiness. The infinity of space. It's play, the effulgences, that which is displayed from the Dharmakaya is groundless and rootless. It is the great unobstructed non-objectivity. It is not the object of any mind. Neither the conventional mind nor Rigpa. The facets of primordial consciousness and noble qualities of the Buddhas do not enhance it. That is, nothing adds to it. The terrible vices, obscurations and miseries of sentient beings do not impair it. Not becoming good or bad, it is the great, immutable, originally pure, all-pervasive, absolute space of the ground of being. That one's a big sentence. Not becoming good or bad, it is the great, immutable, originally pure, all-pervasive, absolute space of the ground of being. Once its existence is determined, that is, ascertained, known, identifying its manifest state, how it is present within oneself, is simply holding one's own ground. Very literal translation. Once you've ascertained it, then at identifying its manifest state, how is this fully present, not within oneself, is simply holding one's ground. You are simply, you are it, and you sustain that awareness. It is very deluded to think that the Dharmakaya did not exist previously and that it is newly coming into existence. So, to use an American phrase, or just English phrase, it's hidden in plain sight. The realm in which the absolute space of the Dharmakaya manifests is non-dual with space. Well, I enjoyed talking about the 10,000 galaxies in that little tiny dark space, it does, this is one of the advantages of modern astronomy. It does give us a sense of the, the almost inconceivable vastness of space. And in the Buddhist worldview, it is no less than that. And so consider that. How big is the space of your mind? You might have thinking, a little bit bigger than my head? 
What is the, what is the extent of Dharmakaya? All the phenomena included in samsara and nirvana. That's the whole universe. Whole universe of phenomena. If there are multiverses, then all of them. And nirvana, which is beyond space and time. All phenomena are naturally present in the emptiness of ultimate reality. Absolute space that is free of the extremes of conceptual elaboration. In other words, there is no possible way ever that you can wrap your conceptual mind around and capture. This is the ultimate non-conquest. And that is, there is ne- there will never be a way that your conceptual mind will be able to wrap around, wrap itself around, capture and own this reality. Uh, because it's free of conceptual elaboration. Including the conceptual constructs of existence and non-existence, coming and going, one and many, arising and ceasing. None of the above. It is called the embodiment of the totality of all facets of primordial consciousness and qualities as perfect, spontaneously actualized play, effulgence, emanation. Thoroughly fathoming the the mode of being of this Dhammakaya, Samadabhadra, or or primordial Buddha, is realization. So now this this word tolpa. What is the nature of realization? It is thoroughly fathoming the mode of being of this Dharmakaya Samadabhadra. By experiencing that state, you know that just as all the reflections of the stars and planets in the ocean are the play of the ocean itself, that is, they do not exist apart from the ocean, and just as the entire animate and inanimate universe is the play of one space, rising from one space. All of samsara and nirvana is the play of the one dharmakaya. They are the great unceasing effulgences or displays of the dharmakaya. Just as the reflections of the planets and stars in the ocean are held by the ocean, they're to be found in the ocean, And just as the entire animate and inanimate universe is held by space, found in space, so are samsara, nirvana, and the path, all held by the one dharmakaya. Experiencing that reality, dwelling in it, entering the womb of the nature of existence, coming to the nature of being within yourself, and ascertaining this to be free of good and bad and of all benefit and harm is the experience of realization by which you gain confidence. And that is enlightenment. So, perhaps you saw when I said confidence that he meant something rather special. And that is the end of his presentation there, what I wanted to share with you. But this word confidence bears a little bit of commentary, not much. It's a sequence. And that is on the path as one seeks to gain some, some, so practices shamatha, seeking to settle the mind into natural state. Practices vipassana, seeking to gain realization of emptiness. Practices zokchen, seeking to gain realization of rikpa. There are four stages that keep on cropping up again and again. 
Now, the first of these is called in Tibetan koa. Koa. It's a very easy word. It just means to understand. So if somebody describes, like me, describes, okay, here's here's a Dzogchen model of the coarse mind, a subtle mind, or substrate consciousness. This is the nature of the substrate. Here is how the mind settles into that state through the practice of settling the mind in its natural state of awareness of awareness. This is how you do it. This is what happened. This is the experience of many, many yogis over many, many centuries. And so one gives a Dharma talk. And either you've understood it or you haven't. If you were given a quiz at the end, like in a university course, could you, and you had got a bunch of questions, like multiple, multiple choice questions, would you get the right answers? Did you get it? Did you? Do you know the difference between substrate and substrate consciousness? Coarse mind and substrate consciousness? And so forth. Introspection and mindfulness. Did you, did you understand it? You know? Could you get an A on the exam? And if you could, then you've understood it. Okay? Okay, I understand. Got it. And that goes also for the practice. Do you know how to practice shamatha without a sign? Do you know how to do it? Not only, yeah, do you know? Do you know what to do? So when you're doing it correctly, you know you're doing it correctly. And when you're doing it incorrectly, you recognize, oh, I'm doing it incorrectly. Then you understand. Okay? So, understanding is the first. And then, out of Goa comes Nyongwa. Nyongwa. And Nyongwa is a very simple term also. It means experience. So, first of all, you gain some sound understanding. For example, of the practice, the method hopefully not mangled in the process of transmission as I've been sharing with you for the last six weeks. That's my aspiration. May I not mangle. And so, you understand it. Well, then, okay, then we have our guided meditations. You do it on your own. And after some time, you are engaging in the practice and you're dwelling there in awareness of awareness. Perhaps you do the oscillation for a while, then rest again. And something happens. This is different than eating pork chops. It's not like quite any, it's not quite like anything else. It's not quite the same as mindfulness of breathing. It's not the same as settling the mind in its natural state. No, this is something else. I guess we'll call this awareness of awareness. And the experience of it is different. It's not like anything else. It's not open presence. It's not anything else. This is, this is shamatha without a sign. That's what it is. Awareness, awareness. And you get the experience of it. And then you linger there for a while. And you get more experience of it. And then you can see when the experience fades, when it gets clear. You start finding that middle way to sustain that experience. Then you have experience. You're actually getting the taste of it. You not only know how to do the practice, you know what the experience is. Not all of it, but you're really, you're like that hound dog, you know, with the, with the rag put, you know, the child's clothing put in your nose. Okay, I got it. Yep, okay, I, I still got it. And then you follow it to, you know, the kid who's lost. But I got the experience. Now, keep on going until it gets stronger and stronger and stronger until my mind is dissolved into substrate consciousness. And I found a little girl. Happy days. So, that's nyongwa. That's experience. Now, this in this context, of course, this is about rikpa, this is about dharmakaya, so it's more than just gaining some experience. The next phase is called topa in Tibetan. Topa. That means realization. So you may gain, if we come back to just where we are today, samatha without a sign. You understand how to do it. Then you gain, gain some experience of doing it and actually knowing that you're doing it correctly. And then as you go deeper and deeper and deeper, 
Let's just highlight these three qualities. Bliss, luminosity, non-conceptuality. You may have some insight, some realization. That was a clear shaft of light of luminosity coming right from the substrate consciousness. That was a sheer blast of bliss. It was not stimulus-driven. That came from only one source. That was non-conceptuality. I've never had anything like it. That was definitely realization of one of these shafts. Or perhaps you've even, you know, really up there further along the path, you're aware your, your senses really have imploded and you really have the experience without having fully achieved shamatha yet. Boy, that was a substrate consciousness, you know. Not just a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but all three of them together simultaneously mingled. That was bliss, luminosity, non-conceptuality. That was the whole shebang. That was it. And then what I was aware of is the substrate. And that's the substrate. Got it. I kind of had some taste of it before that. I had some kind of understanding of it. This is it. That's the substrate. This is my experience of it. This is substrate consciousness. That's it. You haven't achieved shamatha yet, but you know what you're talking about. That's topa. That's realization. And then ding topa. Ding topa, or sometimes deng topa, is gaining confidence. Gaining confidence. I like the analogy of sinking a nail into the wood with a hammer. Right? And so you will whack it until the, the, na- the, t- the top of the nail, the head of the nail head, is flush with the wood, right? Boom. You say, boy, you nailed it. You really nailed that piece of wood. That, that, it's not coming out. Not easily. You nailed it. You realized it. But then, there are cases where you get like a spike or something. I've actually done it, not, not, not recently. You take a kind of a spike and put it right on the top of the nail. And then, you hammer it again. And so the head of the nail goes down beneath the surface. And then you might want to put some putty on it and, make, and then make the whole hole disappear. Right? You've, I, I, I remember the, the name for that just recently. It's called countersinking, isn't it? You countersink the nail, so it goes so deeply into the wood that apart from ripping that wood apart, it's not coming out. You'd have to mangle the wood, destroy the wood to pull it out because there's nothing to hold on to. It's now embedded deeply inside the wood. That's Ding Topa. That nail is now confidently at home. It's not going anywhere. Right? It's not only realization, having sunk in, nailed it, but now it's countersunk. You've achieved Shamatha. You're home. So the notion, I keep on hearing it, and I just kind of wonder, oh, when will they stop? It's kind of like hearing a really bad song. It's like, oh. When I went to Tibet last time, the driver was Chinese. He was very helpful, good driver. But he had one serious flaw. He really loved the backstreet boys. <laughs> oh, it was awful. He played it. We're going through the Kham, through Amdo, this magnificent country. I'm sorry, I'm just showing my age, but it was torture. <laughs> Hearing these little bubblegum songs rolling and rolling and rolling, and I'm seeing the majesty of Tibet and these monasteries. And then as soon as we're back in the Jeep, it was, I love my girlfriend, whatever. I mean, it was... It was about as intelligent lyrics as that. My girlfriend's really cute. She's so sweet. I really like her boobs. Oh, boy. Yabba-dabba-doo. I really like my girlfriend. It was pretty much like on that level. And they make money out of it. Okay.
I don't know how I got there. But that was a searing memory. My last trip to Tibet was the Backstreet Boys. Were the, they were the chorus. Sorry, Backstreet Boys, but you probably wouldn't like my music either. So, I have no idea where that came from, what tangent that was from. But achieving confidence in shamatha is that your home. You go back to it whenever you're like, ah, yes, the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> I keep on hearing this, and it's just kind of like, oh, no, not this again. I like the Backstreet Boys. Oh, I achieved shamatha. It took him only a month, but then a month later I'd lost it. Went off to weekend retreat, got two jhanas. It was a good weekend. Um, I lost it, of course. I achieved all the four jhanas and the samapatis. But, of course, they don't have any of the qualities of them described in the classic text, but they're wrong. I'm sure I got the four jhanas. <sighs> so, it's competence. Knowing it. Knowing it. Confidence for shamatha, knowing the substrate consciousness from the inside. Resting there, it's your home, you nailed it, you countersunk the nail, you have confidence. Gaining glimpses, gaining insights, gaining understanding, experience, insight into emptiness, and then countersinking the nail, and simply seeing all of reality as emptiness and the mirage-like, dream-like apparitions arising from emptiness, non-dual from emptiness. Understanding the teachings on Dzogchen. Gaining some taste. Gaining some realization. And then countersinking the nail. That your view is the great perfection view. That is how phenomena appear to you. As he was just describing, your mind is Dharmakaya. And you're seeing all phenomena from that perspective. And then you countersink the nail. And you're a Buddha. That's all there really is to it. So hopefully that will be helpful. If not today, the imprints are now stored in your mind stream. So whether in this lifetime or some other lifetime. That's why I wanted to have it be Dujom Lingba's words, not my words. My words have about as much weight as that of a chipmunk. But Dujom Lingba was a real, real deal. So, I want to share that with you. Hopefully I have this time well spent. Let's go back to meditation. So much rides or depends on our ability to truly settle the body, speech, and mind in their natural states. If we become expert at this, we set out on the voyage with a good direction. It starts here. So let's do that first.
And now to use the familiar analogy, let's reboot. And that is shut down all the doings of the mind. With your eyes open, your gaze evenly resting in the space in front of you without taking anything as an object, without meditating on anything, without doing anything. What's left over is just being present without distraction, without grasping. And then simply note the obvious, the obvious reality of being aware, and rest in that knowing, attending to nothing else but this one thing, the experience of being aware, quietly, non-conceptually.
then insofar as you find it helpful to remedy the old habits of excitation and laxity, invert and release your awareness In the beginning stages, if you find it helpful, you may conjoin the rhythm with that of the breath. As soon as you can, disengage your attention from the breath. Set your own rhythm. And single-pointedly focus your awareness in this inversion and the release. Inversion into the sheer luminosity of awareness, release into space devoid of any object. You may, if you wish, simultaneously engage in the gentle vas breathing, which is equally suitable for the earlier practice of settling the mind, as it is for this one. Insofar as you find it helpful, go ahead and experiment.
then release the oscillation. Let your awareness utterly come to rest without going outside or inside, with no inversion or release, just let it rest in its own place. Still, non-conceptual, and yet filled with knowing, clear knowing.
muscle. Try to countersink a nail. This one taste, one taste business. Give two examples from the same trip to Tibet several years now. Seven years ago. Something like that. Six, seven years ago. Seven years ago. Long time, my goodness. One phase of the trip, we went way up a valley. Way, way up a valley. We heard there was a, an extraordinary Dzogchen monastery way up. And it was raining heavily. And it was a very narrow, very, very muddy road. And right next to it was a precipice that went down about 500 feet down into a river. And so we went up and up and up and up this road. And then finally came to a bridge that it looked like it would definitely collapse if we drove the jeep over it. And that was the end of the drift, so then we just had to head back. And as we're heading back, our driver, who was a very, very capable driver, uh, he was really eager to get back to the town. So we just zipped back on that slippery, muddy road right next to the precipice, looking, look, oh, like that, looking down at like 80 degrees down. Oh, that's where we would be if we went over the edge. And and he's playing the Backstreet Boys. And my stepdaughter, she was with me and an old friend, three of us. Uh, and then she was there actually four of us because she was pregnant. She three three months pregnant. She was very uneasy, very very uneasy about this, you know, about herself. But she cherished her baby like a Chakravartin, you know, like a like a, like an emperor. I mean, wonderful mother. But she was really she was asked Alan, get him to slow down, get him to slow down. I didn't. I figured it wouldn't help anyway. He's going to drive the way he wants to drive. So there was that experience. Obviously, we got down safely. That was one experience. Same trip. We're visiting Segomba, right towards the end of the trip. We did a big loop into Kham and Amdo from Chengdu out. And we're coming back right on the last leg of the trip and visiting a town I visited many years earlier, back in 1992, Abba, where it keeps on coming up in the news now, Abba. That's where there's this one monastery, Kitty Monastery, where the monks and now just recently a layperson, I saw it in today's news, uh, are immolating themselves in protest to the... Uh, burning themselves, lighting, like, the, like the Vietnamese monks 40, 40 years ago, uh, setting themselves on fire you know, as a protest to their loss of human rights, the loss of their livelihood, the decimation of their culture, uh, and expressing their grief and their outrage at what has happened to their beloved country and their culture. So another monk, another a former monk, did it again. Another one. And if they survive, then they're punished for creating social distress. So that was that town, that same town. I visited the monastery. But there was not that monastery, but one almost across the street, a Segoma. It's um, one of the major Jonama monasteries, the second most important one in all of Tibet. I visited there. It blew my mind. Uh, what was it, almost 20 years ago, 1992, I was really deeply impressed. 800 monks, all of them either have or will participate in a three-year retreat. Kala Chakra, really good. So balanced, young monks, middle-aged monks, then just a few old monks, because all the rest of them were killed or disappeared. So I went back there, took my stepdaughter this time, and... Uh, the Vajracharya, the man who was in charge of, oh, at that time, I think it was maybe 30, 40, 50 monks, I think, were in three-year retreat. And there was the one, the Vajracharya, the, the Vajrayana master, the meditation master for the whole monastery. Uh, he was in retreat when we were there. 
Um, but Jigmet, who's a wonderful monk from that monastery and had a long affiliation with my teacher, Gatchara he he phoned. He phoned there. Actually, I was with his uncle, this marvelous old yogi, classic. He looked like Merlin, long white beard, incredible yogi. And I was with him, so, so, because Jigmet had set this up for us, you know, so he set us up that when we, would, when we arrived at the monastery, they would kind of welcome us. And so, I remember we're, we're there, and we're conversing with this old Aku, Akudawa, Gadawa, I think it was his name, Akudawa, Uncle, Uncle Moon, uh, a very accomplished yogi, and we're just chatting with him. And I'll get back to the Vajrachai in just a second. And we're sitting there and just chatting. This is really remote Tibet. It's ah, way out, nowhere near anywhere. And all the, the monastery, 800 monks, it's all adobe. It's really, you feel like you're in 15th century Tibet. There's hardly any sign of modernity anywhere in sight. And they're practicing as they did one century, two centuries, three centuries ago. They're just saying, modernity? Uh, no thanks. And then they just, they're doing their thing. And so we're ch- chatting with this monk and, uh, this old monk. And the telephone rang. He had a cell phone. And it was Jigmet phoning from California and saying, is Alan there? You taking good care of him? And is, you know, his little party? And I said, wow. Phoning from California here in the middle of, middle of Tibet. That was kind of like a shock. But, so a couple of days went, we spent a few days there. And then the Vajracharya, the Vajra master for the whole monastery, he was in retreat. Quite strict retreat. But, out of his compassion, um, he decided to interrupt his retreat so that we could meet with him. So we did. He was quite young. I don't think he was 40, maybe 35 or so. had been a great accomplished Dzogchen master in his past life, this life, Kala Chakra. And so we were invited in to his meditation room, sat down on the floor, and just sitting in his presence, it was almost overwhelming, the sheer purity of being in his presence. I think I've had that experience a few times in my life, but it's very rare. But just being with him, just like, like you just want to be quiet. And he gave us a short transmission on Kala Chakra. Tremendous presence, so pure. Really made a profound impression on me. I would, I would train with this man any day. I don't care whether he's five years old, 35, 70. That's it. That's purity. That's real purity. Such presence, such stillness, but just purity was the one word that just, this is it. Okay. So that gave you maybe some glimmering of that short hour or so that we spent with him. So awe-inspiring. That experience and driving down at breakneck speed on a muddy, slippery road listening to the Backstreet Boys wondering whether you're going to go over the cliff at any moment. If you really have the Dzogchen view, you'll see those two are equal. Neither one is more pure than the other. Equal. Nirvana and Samsara. One taste, utterly equal. I didn't have it. <laughs> I definitely preferred to be with the Lama rather than the, in the Jeep 
on a muddy road listening to the Backstreet Boys. So I have to confess, still dualistic me. <laughs> Hola, so that's all I wanted to share with you. Any questions or comments? Anybody achieved shamatha recently? <laughs> you know that I'm going to be tough, but it's possible. So, anything coming up? Or shall we just take a break? It's your call. Yes, we'll start with Santiago, and the microphone's right behind you. Yeah, uh, I was just wondering, I don't know if uh, it's the word, but if you could talk a little bit about Shambhala. Oh. I think I have to, since I just met in Kala Chakra. Sure, I mean, you've asked, I'm happy to do so. Hmm. A number of you have heard of Sukhavati, the pure land, emanation of the heart and mind of Buddha Amitabha, and the light and ground. Shambhala, according to tradition, and I'll just speak from that so I won't keep on adding that caveat according, 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 according to the tradition, according to the Kala Chakra, according to the Kala Chakra Tantra, the great commentary, the Vimala Barba, the stainless light. Shambhala is on this planet, on, in our world. And I did years ago, many years ago, oh, 25 years ago, something like that. No, 35 years ago. did a, tra a rough translation of a guide to Shambhala, how to actually go on foot from India to Shambhala. And basically in terms of wanting to know which direction is north. <laughs> That's all the directions I'm going to give you. I discussed this after I translated it. I'm just a rough translation, not precise. But I spoke about it with His Holiness and said, I asked him, what do you think? This is a very inspiring text. How to go to Shambhala with this body? You know? uh, Shambhala is human realm. There are human beings living there. It's said to be north of the Himalayas. It's said to be a place that is basically like a utopia, a spiritual utopia. And that is some really quite pretty high-tech, high technology there. But above all, so it's not primitive uh, technologically, but spiritually. Uh, major place, very extremely conducive for gaining enlightenment in this lifetime, especially by way of Kala Chakra practice. Uh, but of course, other, path, other paths as well. Uh, on this planet, but if we... Well, use Buddhist terminology. We don't have to go to science fiction. It's kind of just phase shifted. It's it's there, but unless you have pure vision, if, unless you have the karma to see it, what you'll see is maybe the Gobi Desert. You'll just you won't see it. It will be cloaked, so to speak, but not cloaked by some super high technology of Star Wars or whatever, but cloaked by impurity of your own karma. You won't see it. Um, but geographically, north of India, and so this guide to Shambhala tells you how to not just go there like on a tourist route, you know, go here and then take a left, but actually it's a whole process of going into meditation, doing deep purification of body and mind. It's a whole alchemical process of transmuting your body as well as purifying your mind, removing obscurations, and then you go from one place to the next, one power spot to the next, starting with Bodhgaya, and then eventually making your way up until you meet with the outer guardians of Shambhala. The outer guardians and they will test you, and if you are sufficiently pure, they'll let you proceed, and if they're not, they'll block you, and if you insist, they'll kill you. Um, 
But if you're sufficiently pure, then you keep on going through these stages. And the guide Shambhala tells you, here's, you now you go here, and now you do this practice, further purification. Go here, here, here. That. And so I translated the text, as I said, just rough translation, and then I spoke with His Holiness years ago, many years ago, and said, I find this very inspiring. Uh, shall I publish this? Make it available? And he said, no, 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 no. Don't do that. People like Santiago will <laughs> we'll pick it up, read it, and head off and try to do it, and it won't turn out nice. <laughs> he didn't say Santiago, but you got the message. He said, no, people will read it and they'll head off and they'll get killed and it'll be your fault. Because yeah. they say, uh, purification, forget that. I'm going to go out and gain conquest over Shambhala. You know, good old Western model. Um, so, a place that is existent now, but shrouded, cloaked, veiled, not available, but nevertheless present, and a place for which, or to which, Tibetans for centuries, and now here's the literal truth, you can accept, what, I, what I've told you is true, now whether you believe in Shambhala, that's your business, but what I've told you is just true. There is such a text, there are such descriptions, such detailed practices, there are accounts of people having actually followed it and gotten there. The text I'm referring to is written in the 18th century by one of the Penchen Lamas, but it's based upon much earlier texts from Sanskrit. Um, And then according to the Kalachakra Tantra, the great commentary, the greatest commentary, allegedly written by a king of Shambhala many centuries ago, um, that it's there, it's present, purify your mind, you can see it. And, oh, here's a factual statement, and that is for centuries, Tibetans especially, but also Mongolians, other people from Central Asia, have been dedicating the merits of their practice to being reborn in Shambhala. Because reborn there basically... Okay, now, why not achieve enlightenment? I'm here. You have now the optimal circumstance. The teachers are there. The enlightened beings are there. The teachings are there. Everything is conducive. Now just go for it and finish off the job. And so, that's a true statement. And for now, decades, uh, quite a few decades, more than three, His Holiness Dalai Lama has been giving the Kalachakra empowerment, as he just did in Washington, D.C., and he's going to be doing it again in January, in Bodhgaya, giving the Kalachakra empowerment. And... The, how do I say, the subtitle for his doing that is again and again, as I recall, it's, he's offering the Kalachakra empowerment for world peace. World peace. Why not Avalokiteshvara for world peace? That's compassion. Or Tara for world peace. Feminine compassion. We really need that. Or Aguya Samaja, king of tantras for world peace. But he doesn't do that. It's Kalachakra for world peace. And so there's a strong connection there. And the prophecies about it, this is all very, very short, but the prophecies about it are that sometime in the not terribly distant future, uh, there will be a meeting of our world, the one we're familiar with, the world of Shambhala. Uh, it will, oddly enough, I'm thinking of Laura in her question earlier about conquest, uh, the prophecies about this state that the world we're familiar with I will go into a state of radical decline, really, really deep decline, economic, environment, social, moral, in every way, really down the toilet, really bad news. And out of the misery, the human misery, there will emerge a figure, a character, who will be, I would say, enormously charismatic, very powerful, seems almost certain he'll have great cities, paranormal abilities, 
and he will gather around him both by his own charisma, by his paranormal abilities, and by sheer military strength, uh, basically gain dominion over our world, this planet, through his charisma, but also by force. When necessary, take force. And when he's gained dominion over pretty much the whole planet, so the prophecy goes, feeling, okay, I gained the conquest that I was looking for, the whole planet. Then his wife, or his consort, who will be an emanation of Tara, a secret agent, <laughs> she will tell him, my dear hubby, there's one place over which you have not gained conquest. There's one more choice piece of fruit that you might try. That's Shambhala. He will say something to the fact that, let me add it. Where is it? And for whatever reasons, the time will be right. The great mandala of our planet will shift. And as he rallies his forces to gain conquest, really literally conquest over Shambhala, to defeat it, conquer it, Right at that point, she'll tell him where to go. <laughs> Both senses of the term. And it's up, some, up there north of Tibet. And that at that point, it will be like the cloak will be revealed. It will be removed. The cloaking device over Shambhala will be removed. The king of Shambhala will know all about what's going on here. They're watching us here. The higher can observe the lower, the lower can't observe the higher. And the king of Shambhala, the 25th in a whole line of kings, will then already have marshaled his forces and there will be a great battle between the two. And quite happily for the whole planet, this actually quite evil one from our side will be defeated. Shambhala will be victorious and that will initiate a time, really a golden era, lasting for hundreds of years, uh, during which there's tremendous flourishing, spiritually, mundane level both, time of great awakening. It'll be transient, it will pass, but for a while it'll be really, really good. And so that's why Tibetans for centuries have been praying to be born on this planet at the time of Shambhala, and preferably to be born in Shambhala. And if not, will they be born and be battling Shambhala? Even to be part of the battle would be good, because then you perish in the battle, and then you can be reborn again and then enjoy Shambhala. So either on either side of the fence, but better on the side of Shambhala. So that's the the, uh, the prophecy in a nutshell. So it either resonates or it doesn't. If it resonates, you might want to hold that in mind when you're dedicating merit. It doesn't resonate. It's a really cool myth. You can relax. Okay. Casa yeah. um, Tibet. I spoke about it at much more length, connection with seeming, well, actually it is a connection with Hopis in North America and other connections as well. I elaborated, that was 10 minutes. I spoke for about 40 minutes or so with Tony Karam translating. So Casa Tibet Mexico has a recording of that that I gave maybe 10 years ago. So if you're interested in more detail, uh, it's there. Oh yeah. So we come to the end of another week. Time to say see you around. Enjoy your, enjoy your Sunday. So, thank you. Yes. Oh, yes. Thank you. Thank you. I was. It came up in the middle of my meditation. Oh, don't forget. Thank you. Uh, a message was sent out.
I, I trace, it, trace it sent it out, but it's a, an antiquated message. So the message that was just sent out, whatever the content was, ignore it. It's an antiquated message. There will be another one, and that will be relevant. The last one, just erase it, forget it. Correct? Thank you. Thank you. Enjoy your dinner.